Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Reporting to you from the lab, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. Wakanda forever! No. <laughs> All right. We, I thought that was supposed to be pre-show banter. What's the matter with you? Whatever. It's, it's still going to be at least topical to some of the things we are covering today. I'm feeling- Kind of. Hey, I seen the movie yet no no spoilers. uh you know yeah, yeah. No spoilers, uh, don't please. worry we remain spoiler free <laughs> but if you haven't seen black panther go out and see it and for those of you wondering who the mysterious voice is <laughs> you know it's not such it's been a while since we brought on an actual yeah. expert or guest what am i chopped liver i've been studying toxoplasma for four years yeah okay fine but we know yeah but it's as sexy as Ebola? I don't know. I don't well, know. undergo sexual reproduction in the cat gut. Let's move on. So many jokes that could be made on that. <laughs> I don't know. So without further ado, this week we're going to be dabbling in a little bit of the African continent. We're going to be dabbling a little bit in neurovirology. And we're going back to one of our old around the world in 80 plagues. We're bringing it all together in our very own superhero-ish episode. So we're going to start off by going over to the African continent to meet up with an old hemorrhagic fever friend, Ebola. And instead of delving into some of the stuff that we've talked about, which is the complications from hemorrhagic fever and, you know, just bleeding to death all over the place, we're actually going to be concentrating on an aspect that's not very well known and very kind of niche researched, which is the 
neurological implications of Ebola infection or the effects of Ebola infection on the brain. That's right. Just <laughs> in case you didn't think a disease that could make you bleed yeah. out your eyeballs was horrifying enough, let's talk about what it does to the brain. And to do that, we have a special guest with us today. So I'd love to introduce our wonderful audience and everybody out there to Dr. Jean Biu. She is a graduate of our wonderful alma mater, Rosalind Franklin Medical School. She is a neurologist from Johns Hopkins, and currently she's studying neurology and virology, or if you want to be fancy and put it all together, neurovirology at the National Institutes of Health. So welcome, Dr. Biu. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. Now, before we get into the proper uh, medicine and what it is that you're doing and where you're doing it, I want to take us through a little bit of <laughs> historical context as to what the NIH is and more importantly, where it comes from. Uh, since you know you work for the NIH, you know what it is. I don't have to tell <laughs> you. But let's go back in time to, oh, Maybe the Victorian era for no good reason. <laughs> it is. They didn't like talking about it, but boy, were those repressed little Englishmen sexy. This may be during the Victorian era that I love, but over on the American side of the pond. And the National Institute of Health actually traces its roots all the way back to 1887, when a one-room laboratory was created with the Marine Hospital Service, and they were a predecessor to the U.S. Public Health Service. So it was established in right at the end of 1700, early 1800, to provide for the medical care of merchant seamen. One clerk in the Treasury Department was responsible for collecting 20 cents per month from the wages of every sailor to cover costs at a series of contracted hospitals. So that was the very first public health service protecting our merchant Marines. And as far as the 1880s, the Marine Health Service had been charged by Congress with examining all passengers on arriving ships for clinical signs of infectious disease, especially for the dreaded diseases, wait for it, cholera. Eh? Yeah, you thought I was going to mess it up, didn't you? Oh, oh thank you. Okay. <laughs> And yellow fever in order to prevent epidemics. If you might remember, yellow fever was a huge concern with the building of the Panama Canal. So the Marine Health Service was told by Congress, investigate everyone coming off these ships to make sure they don't have it. And a young physician, Joseph J. Kinyon, was trained in the newest bacteriological methods to set up a one-room laboratory at Stapleton, Staten Island, New York, and he inaugurated a training program. Dr. Kenyon, by the way, I am a huge fan of his stain, which is used to look for acid fast bacteria. Can you dig it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can dig it. Now, a few years later in 1900, this one room laboratory began to grow and they reorganized it and renamed it the Public Health and Marine Hospital Service and launched a formal program by designating pathology, bacteriology, and now adding chemistry, pharmacology, and zoology. So we're really sort of forming our Avengers here of scientific research. I'm going to be dropping a lot of superhero references in because I just saw Black Panther. So in 1902, there was the Biologics Control Act that charged the laboratory with regulating the production of vaccines and antitoxins 
Therefore, it was a regulatory agency four years before the passage of the 1906 Pure Food and Drugs Act, which, if you remember, had the poison squad that we've talked about in previous episodes as well. Now let's jump ahead. I know I'm rushing you through history, but we have an expert with us who's far more interesting than anything I have to tell you, but it's my show, so you still have to listen. (laughs) This is like the Adam Sandler wedding singer bit. (laughs) I have the microphone, so you... Everyone, listen to me. (laughs) Proceed. In 1930, the Hygienic Laboratory, which is a great name for a laboratory, although you would hope all laboratories would be such. Yeah, I'm a a fan of hygienic laboratories. It beats the alternative. And the 1930, the Hygienic Laboratory changed its name to the National Institute, singular, of Health. There you go. And began to establish fellowships for research into basic biological and medical problems. And this dates all the way back to World War I, you know, because they wanted to study chemistry and medicine. During World War II, it focused entirely on war-related problems. And uh, that was mostly because they wanted to know why 43% of potential inductees to the war were unfit for general military service. Flat feet. Which sounds ridiculous until you think about... Uh, it actually is a really hard problem to march if you have poor arch support. It would sure, sure, but why were so many people with flat feet? Very easy uh, medical problem to have, along with vision problems. Also, podiatry was not a well-established <laughs> field that early on, and no. so a lot of people did have arch yeah, enemies. Well. Uh-huh. well <laughs> But the most common cause of rejection, at least at the time of World War II after flat feet, was defective teeth. And many of those rejected also had syphilis. That didn't make them unfit for service. Just an interesting side note. (laughs) Well, I mean, given what barracks tend to do with young recruits, uh, it's probably a good idea to keep a bunch of syphilis out of the military. Probably. So after World War II, the original divisions of the old National Institute of Health were divided into two newly created institutes, plural, the National Microbiological Institute and the Experimental Biology and Medicine Institute. The tradition of of using those academic names was being transformed by the conviction and realization that institutes named after diseases stood a better chance for being funded by Congress. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Everything needs to be kind of in a nice, neat category so that it can make sense to people outside of like medical research. You know, we, we yeah, yeah, we, we have a, a pretty good idea even inside of research that things are just messy and definitions don't always work too well because diseases don't like to fit into neat little boxes. But, you know, if that's what you need so that you can fund it, define a way. And we have said repeatedly on the show that scientists are bad at naming things. We just, that's why there are so many diseases named after other people. Uh, let's call it for, I don't know, who's around me? Uh, Lou? Yeah, sure. Lou, Lou's disease. <laughs> Lou, yeah, Lou is a good guy. He deserved a disease named after him. And he does. It's a dubious honor. We kind of know the history of how the NIH originally formed. Let's look at it today. So, John, tell us about your role with the NIH. Like, what is it that you do for them? How did you get into it? What took you down this path? 
Um, well, that's a very interesting question. So I'm a neurologist at the NIH. Yeah. And I guess how I ended up at the NIH was that after doing my residency at Johns Hopkins, I decided that I wanted to do further fellowship training. And the NIH offered a really interesting kind of fellowship training in that while you got clinical expertise, you also were able to do a lot of research there. So I was interested in neuroimmunology, which is a very broad subspecialty of neurology, which studies not only neuroimmunological diseases like multiple sclerosis and things like that, but also kind of also is an umbrella over neuroinfectious diseases. And so I, because I wanted to get a really broad experience in these different diseases and also get some research background, I decided to go to the NIH for further, for my fellowship. And what I ended up doing was getting settled in a lab where I studied a lot of viruses. And this was not only rare neurological diseases caused by viruses like HTLV-1-associated myelopathy, also known as tropical spastic paraparesis. And we could totally get into that. That's a really fascinating disease. It's a pretty rare disease. Also other diseases caused by things like different kinds of herpes viruses and different connections to neurologic diseases, like connections between herpes viruses and types of seizures or even multiple sclerosis and things like that. So I kind of did a fellowship looking into different things, got involved in the lab for the first time, did a lot of bench research, looking at new new types of um, ways of detecting viruses and things like that. Did a lot of bench work. And that's lab bench. That's not like heavy lifting of weights and pumping up to become a super villain. No, no, exactly. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a weakling when it comes to actually lifting heavy things. But yes, when I'm talking about bench research, I'm talking about it's, it could be a hero story as well. Well, I wanted to be clear because, I mean, you're starting with a traditional supervillain origin story. I worked in a lab surrounded by dangerous tropical diseases. And then I got, yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically what I did was I just studied a bunch of interesting different viruses. And at the NIH, you get to do these very, the NIH is a very cool place to work because nowhere else can you really study some of these very rare diseases because you can't get funding for them. You know, it affects so few people in the U.S. Funding is very hard to get to actually do research on some of these diseases. So the NIH is very special in that we get to study very rare diseases. HGLV1 associated myelopathy being one, HHV6 encephalitis being another. And those are kind of two big um, diseases that I was studying before I got into the Ebola work. So basically, as a neurologist studying viruses, I was starting to think about, well, now that I'm kind of coming towards the end of my fellowship, and it's a very interesting fellowship, but I didn't you know, doing the bench research really wasn't where my heart was. I really loved seeing patients and I missed seeing patients. I miss people. Yeah. You know, like something that I realized through going through this fellowship that was very research heavy and research oriented. I miss people. Exactly. Right. You know, I'm not lonely. Like, okay. You like, like, do you you talk to your rats or something? I don't know. (laughs) There are people when you're doing bench research. I mean, there's, um, Okay, I'm all alone in the lab right now. Oh, no. <laughs> Wait, there were people here before, I swear. Juan! He's not here. Your imaginary friend doesn't count. <laughs> He's gone. Aww. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Continue. So you said you got to see a lot of both rare diseases and presumably highly infectious ones. What about Ebola called out to you in a superhero way? So come on. I mean, okay. We're probably all about the same age. Who didn't watch Outbreak when they were 10 years old and think, how cool was that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually you were cheering on the scientists and not the infection, but yeah. Yeah, you know, so it's it's always been, like, I mean, these very dangerous 
diseases have always been absolutely fascinating to me. And how this, this strange, what do you even call a virus? It's not even an organism. Yeah, it's, it's that cusp of life and non-life kind of thing. It, it is. And, and the fact that it can wreak so much havoc in a person, like how, how is that not fright, like terrifying and fascinating at the exact same time? I don't know. But I, I always thought that Ebola yeah, was a true. pretty interesting disease in and of itself. And then whenever the 2014 2000 through 2016 outbreak came out, it just grabbed me by the head because I thought it was just, you know, a fascinating thing. Like there's a huge outbreak going on. We don't know exactly how to stop it. But what was really interesting about Ebola and that I didn't know about, I did not realize that Ebola actually does affect the brain and the nervous system and so on and so forth. Because I think that previously Ebola had affected such small communities in these very, very isolated areas, very small outbreaks, so that we didn't really get to know fully what really goes on. Besides, yes, we know that, yes, there's bleeding from the eyes and so, you know, that it's a viral hemorrhagic fever. You don't necessarily bleed out from your eyes all the time. Just just to clear that up. What, what do you mean all the time? Like, how often does it need to happen? <laughs> no, no, no. But what she's saying is that uh, it's, it's uh, you know, the fatality is pretty high. But sometimes you don't bleed to death. Sometimes you just, you know, get viremia and septic and shock die. Oh, well, that's a boring death. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, how Ebola is, it's not, it is a hemorrhagic fever, but the hemorrhages happen not, it, I would say in more of a minority of patients. Most will have just kind of this massive cytokine storm and so that they have copious nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, like copious amounts of diarrhea. So that more often what happens is that they actually just become extremely dehydrated. Like they lose gallons and gallons worth of stool. I mean, isn't that terrifying? That in and of itself is terrifying. And in later stages and in you know certain patients, you can have the hemorrhagic complications as well. And the different types of viruses and different outbreaks have different characteristics of each of you know these kinds of viral illnesses. So maybe some are more hemorrhagic than others. But the most recent outbreak was not overly hemorrhagic. So what are the effects that Ebola has on the brain? I'll go back to kind of how I got into being in this situation. What happened was there were a couple of different re- ways that the NIH, specifically the neurology department, got involved in neurology. studying Ebola. Yeah. One thing was that we had one patient who came to the NIH and he had some really interesting neurologic issues, which I had never been really fully aware of. The guy came in, walked off the plane to come to the NIH, or sorry, walked on the plane to come to the NIH. And by the time he actually was transferred to the NIH, he was unable to walk because he had diffuse weakness. Okay, not very surprising if you have a very severe illness, you would be very diffusely weak. But he subsequently developed kind of signs of a meningoencephalitis, basically a <laughs> stiff neck. He became comatose, was also having some abnormal movements, which is very unusual. And there have been other people who have described seizures and things like that, seizures, altered mental status in Ebola, although very rarely. But this patient had all sorts of interesting findings. And actually, he's been uh, described in the literature for anybody who wants to look it up. But he also had some different cranial nerve findings. So basically, you know, his eyes weren't moving correctly. And he also had just signs of diffuse hyperreflex. Meaning very, very spastic reflexes. Like, very, like yes, yeah, spastic reflexes. Just, just really abnormal findings that you wouldn't just necessarily expect to have happened in somebody who's having severe nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or even bleeding from their eyes, you know, like odd neurologic finding. 
they're clearly the brain is affected and that's not focal, which we're not, you know, we're not expected at all. And he also had some weakness on one side versus the other and things like that. Basically, if you'd have found him, you know, not having Ebola, you would have done a lumbar puncture to figure out what's going on, would have done an MRI to see if he had he had strokes and so on and so forth. Very abnormal findings. And a lumbar puncture for our listening audience is also called a spinal tap, uh, like right. the movie, but much more painful. Like the movie. Yeah, totally <laughs> involved. Essentially, what's happening here is that you're seeing a bunch of symptoms which don't make sense with Ebola, how it's currently being described, and that ma- that make any other sensible person think that there's something different going on than Ebola at first. That would be your first right. thought. Or a infection. Yeah, or so, you know something, or, or basically that the the brain is affected. Specifically, the brain is affected in this patient. You know, had you not known that he had Ebola, you would have checked for all sorts of other, you know, neurologic infections or something like that. When you were involved in the care of this patient, were you in like the big <laughs> Intel Inside suits, uh, or like you know how are you? Well, I mean, tell yeah, me, like, this tell is me. this is a highly this is a highly contagious disease. Absolutely. So how are you examining the person? Take me through, like, are they in a lab Area 51 style? Are they in a regular hospital bed? The NIH has this really cool unit. And unfortunately, I was not involved in the, the particular care of this patient. I became involved in, you know, kind of studying Ebola after this patient. But I almost signed up for actually being what what they call a Watson. These people who watch. No shit, Sherlock. Exactly. I'm like, I have to bring up this Watson thing. So anyway. So, so the NIH has a very specific unit for highly infectious people. And for example, more commonly, if somebody who is at a, um, a nearby facility who studies Ebola in lab animals and things like that, they get a needle stick or something like that. They don't know if they're infected or not. They'll be put in this isolation unit where there's like video monitoring, there's kind of robotics and stuff like that. And then people who can actually dress up will dress up in, in full protective, personal protective equipment, you know, the full, the respirators and everything like that, looking like... Yeah, the Pentium processor suits. <laughs> For those of us who are old enough to remember the old Intel Inside commercials, you grandpa. <laughs> Shut up. Shut your mouth. <laughs> Look, we're talking yeah, about I, outbreak. I, I, but yes, like, you know, what you imagine, the full protect PPE, what we call personal protective equipment, face shields, full body covering, double gloved and so on and so forth, the very basis, boots. So there's actually a, a full unit that has, I think, two beds in this particular unit. And um, everything is very much geared towards effectively containing whatever highly infectious disease a person might have and then getting rid of all of their waste and everything like that in such a way that nobody's going to come in contact with it. And they, you know whatever infection they have, whether it's known or unknown, is contained. So it's a pretty cool thing. Tucked in a corner of the clinical center of NIH which is a huge building tucked in <laughs> so such sure. a way that, that nobody's going to be actively you know, exposed should so some kind of... There's no you know, janitors patient. wandering in, you know, casually. No, exactly. Triple locked unit and things, you know, pretty, pretty fancy. It's really... And fancy. that's also going to have negative pressure rooms, <laughs> I'm guessing, where the air pressure is intentionally kept lower than the surrounding area. So <laughs> none of the particles can... <laughs> escape it's out. It's, it's almost like being in a, a very, very mild vacuum. Yes. Yes. And I'm sorry, you said cool. your role here or the roles of some of these observers are called Watsons. Can you go into that a little more? Yeah. 
So my, my boss, Avi, he was actually consulted on this patient. And so when he would go in to see this patient or anybody, he would have to get dressed up in all of his, his personal protective equipment. And then whenever he would come out, somebody would watch him take off everything to make sure that you're taking off everything appropriately so that you're not going to come into contact with anything might be on the outside of your personal protective equipment. Because typically you're, you're in the, at least two layers of pretty much everything. So somebody is actively watching you to make sure that you don't take anything off the wrong okay. way. That you don't touch anything before you're out of your PPE and so on and so forth. And then you go straight after you have all of your PPE on and everything like that, that you go out and everything. So there's somebody who's actually watching you to make sure that you get into your PPE appropriately and then get out of it appropriately as well. This is not because, you know, people working at the NIH are a bunch of like clumsy goons. It's because it's that dangerous that, you know, any little slip up in protocol could mean a disaster. Yes. So they're they're meant to be trained observers and learn kind of like, you know, Watson was to Sherlock Holmes. Let's not forget, Watson was a very accomplished doctor. So that is fascinating that there's an entire unit of people just called Watsons. I, I like that idea. I hope you're all walking around wearing deer stalker caps. That's how I choose to imagine it. Absolutely. Just keep that, okay. that, that image in your don't, head, Josh. Don't take Absolutely. my dreams. So you originally kind of learned about this not being directly involved. Where did this particular patient come from? Yeah, so he was um he was an American who then who was at least at that time working in Sierra Leone. So there are a number of different Westerners we who contracted the disease and then were brought over to different places in the U.S. Some people in Nebraska, some people in Emory, and then of course you know at the NIH as well. There's a few places that are kind of dealt that are equipped for dealing with kind of these so, high um, high risk. High so this was diseases. a a fellow researcher. This was a humanitarian worker. This was a Tourist. I believe he was more of a humanitarian, yeah, a care worker. So before we move on to the next part, are there any other super cool like cliques or code names of people in the NIH like Watsons? Because this is fascinating to me. Um, I can't think of anything specifically that is kind of as cool as that. Neurovirologist yes. is a pretty dang cool title too. So, so you saw this guy who would come back from a foreign country with this incredibly rare or contagious tropical disease and thought to yourself, I haven't traveled in a while. I should go. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just, you know, I thought it was really, really cool. And so I just, but I, w I didn't get d directly involved right after that. Like I said, at, at that point, I thought like, hmm, maybe I want to, you know, kind of be involved in this, this process. And maybe I want to become a Watson, for example. So I looked into that a little bit. But in the meantime, Yay! what happened was Sorry. that, so I work in NINDS. It's the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. So the NIH now has gone from, you said, one or two different institutes to, I don't even remember how many institutes, but well over 10. Another institute being the um, NIAID, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Yay! Sorry. NIAID. So I don't know. You, maybe you're NIAID funded, Santosh. So we are. Uh, uh, my particular funding is actually through the HIV study section. So HIV and AIDS. But my boss has uh, his... His principal grant is through NIAID, and of course, we're all about infectious diseases and toxoplasma, so that's where we go. Parasitology division forever! Yeah, yeah. Needs to be studied, absolutely. So anyway, NIAID was starting up a study, actually a number of different studies of Ebola um, during this this acute outbreak. One of them were, you know, some of them were treatment <laughs> trials, including... Um, the uh, a double-blind placebo control of ZMAP, 
And so these were all done in Liberia under the <laughs> PREVAIL, a study called PREVAIL. I don't remember exactly what PREVAIL stands for, but um, basically it's studying Ebola in, in Liberia. It's to make things easy to remember so we can forget what they stand for. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. I'm like, I'm like, I should have written this out exactly so uh, I remember brief exactly. A brief aside, 27 institutes currently at the NIH. Take that to your March Thank review. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I do. I do love bar trivia. So the Prevail study has a number of different sub-studies, and one of them is the natural history study. Beginning in February or March of 2015, while the, the outbreak was still going on in West Africa, the Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases was starting up this natural history protocol of Ebola. And through it, just, you know, just to kind of figure out what, you know, what symptoms patients were having, those who survived, what symptoms were they having afterwards? We know very well that there are lots of different ophthalmic and ocular diseases that they can have. Joint arthralgias are very common, fatigue, and so on and so forth. What else are these patients having? How long do they have it for? What's the natural history of people who survive Ebola? And these are people who are really surviving Ebola with very limited supply or access to antibiotics and very under under-resourced hospitals. These are people who are really just toughing it out. Yeah, absolutely. So so the fact that these patients actually survived in the first place is pretty, pretty interesting. So really kind of how neuro- how the neurology, um, you know, got involved. We had our eye colleagues there, um, uh, Rachel Bishop and um, Alan Agrari from, from Hopkins, were there um, as part of this natural history protocol. And they were trying, they were trying to see some of these patients because we knew that there were some issues with in survivors who had ocular inflammation and so on and so forth. Like uveitis is a very common, um, has been previously noted and and things like that. And so they wanted to figure out, you know, to what extent are the eyes involved after Ebola. And when they were doing their exams, they just, you know, they just noticed that these patients, (laughs) you know, their eyes didn't move quite right. When you're trying to, you know, discuss with them how to just get Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The, the examination done, it seemed like there was a disconnect, like there might have been some kind of issues with with these patients cognitively and actually from a cranial nerve perspective, not that they did need full neurologic exams, but they just thought, you know what, something's kind of off here. And so they spoke to my, you know, my boss who I mentioned before, Avi Nath. And so Avi actually went to Liberia 2015, saw a couple of patients, and he was just shocked by some of these patients who had a lot of neurologic findings. Came back to the NINDS and recruited several of us neuroimmunology fellows of course, I was just, you know, he's like, I don't know if anybody wants to come to Liberia to see these people or not. And, and I was like, um, yeah, 
Come here, coach. <laughs> Shut up and take my money. I'm like, sure. Yeah. I'm like, Okay, so playing. Come on. Were recruited for this Um, so much as you actively volunteered. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at least it really, really spoke to me. And a number, you know, there are a number of us uh, fellows, I think maybe five total who went over. How how many are left, Outbreak Girl? Yeah. So so it was just kind of as part (laughs) of the, um, yeah, they're they're all fine. They're all living and fine. Are you happy? You devious. Are you happy? They got your answer. There was no death in so-and-so. Wakanda forever. Go on. It's <laughs> creepy. Sounded like you wanted to hear, like, stories of mayhem. No, no. I just want to know that the person we're interviewing is, you know, the one who toughed it through all of this. And if all the others mysteriously decided that they no longer were interested, they don't have to die. So, yeah, no, 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 exactly. So, so basically, we all went over, you know, in a couple of different, you know, over about a month and a half and, you know, kind of different blocks to see at least the first first cohort of Ebola survivors. And these were people who had had Ebola you know, six months out, up to a year out or something like that. And we were just kind of really um, struck by the fact that, you know, while they may not have been grossly abnormal, they definitely had a lot of neurologic abnormalities from cranial nerve abnormalities, you know, just the way that their eyes would move and things like that, slight facial weakness and tongue weakness, all the way to having seizures and weakness consistent with strokes and sensory loss and also findings of cerebellar abnormalities just just kind of it ran the whole gamut very few people actually looked completely normal and we didn't really know if whether or not that was from ebola versus just kind of well living in west africa having malaria as a child possibly not having you know the right kind of vitamins and stuff like that you know nutritional deficiencies or exposures to heavy metals or who who knows what right it's a lot of complicating factors a lot of complicating factors so whenever we saw these patients there was like i said a whole range some people not so abnormal up to Pretty, pretty abnormal people. And I knew that we just really needed to see these people for over time. We needed to also see people who were their close contacts and so on and so forth, get a kind of a control, a case control. Unfortunately, in this particular natural history study, they were recruiting actively close contacts of the, the Ebola survivors. So basically, once we were done seeing those initial patients at that first time point, my boss is kind of like, well, which of you fellows like, you know, wants to go back, can go back and things like that. And I'm like, well, you know what? I was just thinking about moving on, but I'll stay for this stuff. This is awesome. This is really cool. And really, and then he tossed a knife down into a circle and said, that's exactly. And I said, I'm it, you know, no, but, um, you know, and, and at that time, other, you know, all of the other people were like, yeah, this, that was really cool, but I don't know that I really want to go back and stuff like that. And I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I'll go back as many times as you want. <laughs> yeah. Looking around like, What's the matter with you people? You have the chance to throw yourself into danger and intrigue. Why wouldn't you go right away? Totally, right? So I thought it was, you know, a really exciting project to really just sink my teeth into at that time. I was right at that point where I was trying to figure out if I wanted to move on or not. And it, it just kind of, this opportunity popped up right at the right right time for me. So so I kind of took it on as my own project. And, and right about that time, a very interesting case came up in the news, actually. I don't know if you guys remember the the case of Pauline Caffrey, the Scottish nurse. So this is a nurse who she was working in Sierra Leone. She was from, originally from Scotland. Say around January 2015, she contracted Ebola. Maybe it was right before that. I don't remember exactly. Was transported to the UK and was treated there. She um, got very intensive therapy and apparently had no very little sequelae afterwards. But 
for about nine months was, you know, just recovering, doing well. And then in October, 2015, about the time that I actually went to Liberia for the first time, she developed a severe meningoencephalitis. So basically a meningitis where basically, you know, stiff neck, altered mental status. She had cranial neuropathies, had a spinal tap at that time. And I don't think anybody realized that, you know, she could be positive for Ebola, but Ebola came back. And I don't think anybody realized that, you know, she could be positive for Ebola, but Ebola came back in her CSF at a much higher level than it was in her peripheral and her, her, her serum, basically. So basically, she had a relapse of Ebola that affected the, the central nervous system. And that, I think, just kind of surprised the hell out of even people who are very familiar with this virus. You know, the fact that, that the virus could kind of just hang out in the central nervous system and then all of a sudden come out with guns flaring and cause this crazy relapse. In a, you know, usually you think of people who have Ebola, once they have it and they get over it, that's it, right? But this lady proved that that is not the case. And then we were also at that same time seeing these patients who had frank neurologic abnormalities on their exams. I think that at that time, it was really clear that Ebola really affected the brain. And I don't think that it had really been well described at all prior to that time. And because of all of that, one of my colleagues, Brian Smith and I, we talked about, well, you know, maybe we need to actually see whether or not we can find Ebola in the, in the central nervous system. And by that, do lumbar punctures or spinal taps in some of these patients. So in December of 2015, Brian and I went back to Liberia and actually did spinal taps in, a, in a, some of the patients that we had seen who had neurologic issues and ongoing symptoms and things like that. And that was pretty exciting because we didn't know what we were going to find. So we actually dressed in full PPE. We were in Liberia and not the ideal, most ideal settings, but fully dressed in our, you know, super like our, our Oh, I got it. Hold on. A more current reference. Your Stranger Things de- Hawkins Department of Energy suits. That's right. There you go. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, since we were in Liberia and we didn't have like the funds to actually have that, it was more like a little kind of like the Tyvek suits, you know? <laughs> duct tape and hefty bags. Got it. That's actually lots of duct tape. Yeah. It wasn't quite that exciting. But but so, yeah. So did doing lumbar punctures and all of that PPE was definitely, definitely interesting and, and making sure not a drop spilled. I mean, it was the most intense lumbar punctures I've ever done. Um, it was pretty cool. But fortunately, they they all came back negative, you know, kind of indicating that Maybe the the virus, you know, does stick around, but in very rare cases, and maybe it's cell associated, so it's not just floating around in the CSF. But I thought it was pretty informative that you know you could do lumbar punctures in Ebola survivors. So, how many spines would you say you were tapping a day in Liberia? <laughs> That's a serious question. What are you laughing at me for? <laughs> no, 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 no. I get it. It's. I mean, these aren't sat in a row like cattle, but I, I, I just got this image of my house. Oh, one, two, three. <laughs> yeah. I'm not asking if he's playing, you know, a backbone xylophone. I want to know, like, what kind of patient, how many patients are she? Although a backbone xylophone would be fun. But how many patients, you know, is she doing this to in a general workday? Well, um, so, so because of kind of we, we just kind of selected a, a certain number of patients, not a huge number, to ha- who had had specific findings during their acutable illness, you know, so either people who had had a history of meningitis during Ebola or were comatose, and then who were having sequelae, such as headache, memory loss, and, you know, whether it's seizures and so on. And then also we found abnormalities on exams. So that kind of narrowed down the amount of patients that we included as 
possible people to get spinal taps, then they had to make sure that they were safe to do lumbar punctures in because we didn't have like, you know, CT scans and stuff like that. So we had to make sure that they, you know, their neurologic exams were stable. Um, they didn't have any papilledema or evidence of increased intracranial pressure. It, it was a, it was a bit of a process. And then also making sure that they knew what they were going through, what that they agreed to it. And so we ended up only tapping about seven patients. Yeah. And that was just for, you know, a week that we're there. Certainly, I mean, I can tap easily five people in a day. That's not a problem. But like a keg, might as well work in a brewery. Oh, yeah. Well, I can tap ma- many more than five patients in a day. I can I can have five patients in an hour. Come on. Not, not to brag. No brag. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But, but I mean, there's some really unique complications or things to deal with that you mentioned just by virtue of working in the third world itself. You know, you really are dependent on your physical exam. And the only imaging you have, it sounds like, is the Mark I eyeball. What are some of the other challenges that you found working in Liberia or working in a place where you really don't have access to all the the fancy tech that we often see in the Western world and have come to rely so heavily on? Yeah, I mean, well, it just changes the way you think about things. For example, um, you know, I've had a patient who came in who had a stroke because you don't know if it's a hemorrhagic stroke or an ischemic stroke. So basically, whether or not there was a bleed in the brain versus a lack of blood going to the right spot in the brain, you don't know exactly how you should treat it. So normally, if you have an ischemic stroke, and you can easily tell that from just a head CT, for an ischemic stroke, a really simple treatment is just aspirin. But because I didn't know whether or not the guy had had blood in his brain or or not, or a clot cause, causing the you know lack of blood to to go to the brain and you know and the and the part of brain the brain dying, you can't really give that very simple, very cheap, very available treatment. Right, because an aspirin is going to bleed more. There's a bleed. Yeah, that's the opposite of what you want. Yeah. So, so you know, just simple things like that, you know, very simple treatment recommendations that you would typically make, it's you have to be careful about that. You have to think about things very carefully to know exactly what's going on. Is it infectious? Is it an ischemia? Is it a tumor or something like that? This and that, whatever. Because the best you might have is an x-ray. And so, yeah, the x-ray might be able to tell you that, you know, they have this horrible degenerative spine or have POTS disease from tuberculosis or something like that causing their periparesis. But if you don't have that, you're just not really sure what's going on. What kind of conditions are you working in? Are you in an actual uh, local hospital that you've repurposed? Are you in... I don't know, like field research labs or tents that you're setting up? What What are your working conditions? My working conditions are actually quite nice because when NIAD went in to, to start up this, this study, they um, converted a part of an old part of John F. Kennedy Hospital, which used to be actually the you know, premier hospital of Liberia it still is, honestly, but it's it's been through some very, very tough days, especially after Liberia's civil war in the 1990s and stuff like that. It's a pretty rough hospital, but NIAD renovated uh, an entire wing or at least an, an entire floor to actually do these studies. And so it's actually not bad at all as far as it goes. And so I typically see patients there. I, I see the same cohort that I saw um, from the very beginning. I've been following them up every six months as well as their close contacts and then trying to get involved in some other different people who are, I'm sorry, some other different groups that are going on around some of the more rural hospitals and things like that to kind of you know, whether it is teach the residents that are there, 
um, because there are actually no neurologists currently working in Liberia. And neurological care is very much, it's a little bit, uh, I don't want to say ignored, but it's, uh, you know, there's so many different issues going on and there's no active neurologist there that it's, it kind of falls by the wayside, unfortunately. It sounds like it's certainly not prioritized, maybe, maybe as highly. Uh, now, interestingly, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're working at, you said, John F. Kennedy Hospital. So our home listeners may be wondering how a hospital in West Africa would come to be named for John F. Kennedy. And jumping back into bar trivia, the capital of Liberia, and, you know, you're welcome, Susanna, I know you love geography. Uh, the capital of Liberia is Monrovia, named for President James Monroe. And that's because Liberia is a country which was founded, established, colonized, and controlled by citizens of the U.S. and ex-Caribbean slaves as a colony for former African slaves and their free black descendants. So this was, there has always been a very close relationship between U.S. and all these people who had been, you know, freed or, uh, you know, came from the Caribbean, escaped bondage, went and sort of resettled back in Africa. And Liberia was where many of them at the time, thank the president who's in charge at the time. And you will find it sounds like a lot of U.S. affiliated names throughout the country. Would that be an accurate assessment, John? Absolutely. Like there's even a county that's Maryland County and stuff, things like that. Um, so, Along with Washington, D.C., it is one of two national capitals to be named after a U.S. president. So, so yeah, it's kind of cool. And, and the, the native language is English. It's a little bit um, difficult to understand with uh, strong accents and things like that, as well as many other more local tribal languages. So when I first started going there, I needed a Liberian translator, even though they were just speaking kind of a slightly different English to some of these patients. <laughs> hey, hey, doctor. She said, hey, doctor. Yeah. So I've subsequently learned how to kind of just, you know, speak with a, a more Liberian accent. And for the most part, I can uh, just speak normally to my patients by myself and things like that. So it's, it's pretty fun. It's a pretty cool place to be. So how, how often do you go to Liberia and how long do you stay when you go? Um, so, so like I was saying, I follow up my patients every, every six months. So typically I go around somewhere between January to March. And then again, another time, um, time frame being July through September and it just depends on how long it takes to see all of the patients. So I might take one or two trips, depending, you know, maybe for a couple of weeks at a time. Like I just came back from a, a week and a half trip and I'm going again um, on Saturday, two weeks day to hopefully see the rest of the patients. And if I need to see, you know, if I don't get to catch everybody, I'll go back for this kind of six month follow up and then I'll go again. And, and how long have you been doing this now? It's been about two and a half years now that I've been following patients. I'm happy to say that they actually are doing really well. There's a vast difference between when I saw them, you know, in October through 2015 as to when I see them now. Many people who had pretty, pretty abnormal neurologic exams have really normalized. And that's a wonderful thing to say. And this was just with time, right? As they... Time. No treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Because we have no antivirals or anything like that. So I didn't know... I wanted to ask some of the nerdy questions. As to, I actually wanted to find out from you. So what was the prevalence of neurological disease? Um, what, how many of the patients were kind of neuro disease free versus had some sort of focal findings? 
Yeah, about two thirds of the patients had some kind of findings on their exam. You know, some of them not very overly severe or anything like that, but but at least something. And almost all of them were complaining of some sort of a complaint that could be construed as a neurologic complaint. Some of them were very, maybe 70% had headaches. And these were people who had headaches before. If they had had headaches, they were much worse than they had been before. Most of those patients I'm talking about, however, had new onset headaches. These were people who did not complain of you know, headaches beforehand, pretty remarkable headaches afterwards. The vast majority of also complained of, of memory loss, which again, it's a subjective kind of uh, a complaint, but they didn't feel like themselves, you know? Yeah, they felt kind of ill at ease, discombobulated. Yeah, they didn't, you know, they didn't feel like they could remember things, that they were thinking very properly and so on and so forth. Lots of people who had hearing loss, who had you know, dizziness, like including vertigo even, overall, like kind of more diffuse weakness, fatigue, and things like that. Some, some of these kind of more vague complaints. Very few people who had pretty severe stuff, things like seizures or even had, um, had had strokes during, or what seemed like strokes during their acute illness, and so we're recovering from that as well. Pretty interesting findings for sure. But it ran kind of the whole gamut, honestly. So for those neurological complaints, when you had, you know, your beautiful clinical history and the tests that you were able to do, I'm guessing you had like an epidemiologist also on board or somewhere in touch where you could talk to them. Did you have a way to tease out what percentage of those you could attribute specifically to Ebola versus to maybe something else? And then were you able to move forward with any of the other patients to actually prove the presence of Ebola in the brain? Or in the CSF? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so great question. So what we did was to kind of figure out what was due to Ebola versus just the kind of, you know, background things that you would have in West Africa. Yeah, other stuff that would wonk your brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, we did see close contacts of the Ebola patients who had not had Ebola and then made sure that actually they were serologically concordant with that. So there were some people who we, we saw who said that there were Ebola survivors that did not actually have Ebola antibodies. Okay, yeah, so you looked in their blood and so, so you, you were testing if their immune system had met Ebola before and shaken hands. Right, and then we saw close contacts, and again, you know, serologically they should not have had Ebola before, but there were, you know, a small percentage who had, and so looking at the people who said they were survivors who had a, who had Ebola antibodies versus the close contacts who did not have Ebola antibodies and comparing that the symptoms that they that they responded to versus the neurologic exam that we documented and really teased out that the fact that the Ebola survivors definitely had neurologic complications most commonly like i said headaches memory loss at least complaints of those sorts of things. And then their neurologic exams were definitely more abnormal compared to the close survivors. I will say one thing, the close survivors definitely had a higher amount of peripheral neuropathy than the, the, the survivors, which I thought was... So numbness, tingling in the fingers and toes, that kind of... Exactly. And you know what? Now that I've seen them for longer, I think that this is partly like, you know, vitamin deficiencies and stuff because I have given so many, diff so many different people, whether close contacts or survivors, just multivitamins to... to, to and they've actually... Sure, sure. <laughs> They're Flintstones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Flintstones vitamins actually work. I don't know. Um, but there's, there's other things, of course, that can cause neuropathy that because of the limited resources we have, we haven't been able to check a lot of the different things that we might check for, say, peripheral neuropathies or things like that. But like getting a hemoglobin A1C, I don't actually have the capability of doing that. 
Oh, sure, to check for diabetes. So we can check, you know, just random sugars and stuff like that to see. But an actual hemoglobin A1C is kind of difficult to obtain. Um, And then were the neurological symptoms kind of in the middle of an Ebola infection? Did they come uh, at the tail end? Were they at the beginning? If, If a person was paying close enough attention, could they use some of the neurological symptoms to to find like early onset Ebola? You know what? It's it's really interesting. I would say that most people who had Ebola did not necessarily have overt neurologic symptoms at the beginning of their disease. Very commonly, people with Ebola will have a high fever and a headache and kind of general malaise, maybe muscle aches and things like that, kind of these vague symptoms. But then as the disease progresses, people will have other symptoms that might be consistent with neurologic issues. Like I said, meningitis, which we I didn't, never really fully realized before all outbreak occurred. People with Ebola can actually have meningitis types of symptoms with stiff neck, altered mental status, and things like that. Things like seizures. Again, it's not a common rep- uh, manifestation of Ebola, but it definitely has. Ha- you know, it definitely happens. Also, altered mental status to the point that you have coma. And are these all the same pathophysiological manifestations of Ebola? No, I don't necessarily think so. I think that there, you know, there are a variety of ways that Ebola affects the, affects the brain, whether directly, say, in a meningoencephalitis versus kind of through, you know, hemorrhagic symptoms or, or microvascular ischemic symptoms. But I, no, I would not diagnose Ebola based on neurologic symptoms. I think that the overt neurologic issues that occur in acute Ebola are kind of more in the minority, but it does seem that, say, even patients who have had pretty a garden variety type of Ebola might have neurologic symptoms afterwards. Oh, you know, garden variety Ebola, just that regular kind that, that pops up. Are there any upcoming studies that, that you're publishing based on your findings or what kind of what's the end result of some of this research that you've been doing over the last two years? Just a little bit of blood guys, you know, whatever. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think that when we first saw these patients, we were really, you know, pretty shocked at, at how many patients had neurologic findings. But what I've found, what I've subsequently found, and we haven't fully published all of these kind of this natural history of the neurologic complications just yet. That's I have a manuscript in process. But one of the points that I would like to make is that actually these patients do improve. So even patients who you know, we're very, very sick. Most of them are actually able to get back into the workforce, back to doing what they were able to do before. And so that tells us that some of these patients who are extremely sick can eventually recover very well. We really need to actually, you know, when these patients do get treated, or sorry, do, do become ill, they re- we really need to focus on the actual appropriate treatment for these people. So these people who are in West Africa in the Ebola treatment units who are not getting the appropriate IV fluids, you know, that needs to change. These people can actually pull through and, you know, recover, survive, and go back into society and do really well. I think that that speaks volumes for what these patients have been through, what they what they can accomplish and everything like that. So, you know, these people are survivors and we need to recognize that. And I think that is a, a fantastic place to end at least that portion Uh, you know, the medical portion of the interview. And now, very briefly, we always like to cover what we call just the tip, a travel story or experience. Now, since it seems as though you spend rather a lot of time in Liberia, uh, 
clearly you can't be working every single moment that you're there. Do you have a favorite place that you like to travel or a particularly memorable story from your experience? If, if I was going to go to Liberia as a tourist. <laughs> well, okay. So I wouldn't say that. So we're always stuck in the Cape Hotel, which is a great hotel, but there's a nice looking beach right in front of it which is on Mamba Point in Monrovia. And I would say, do not go to that beach. It might look really great. There are really wonderful sunsets that occur there. But don't go there because apparently some pay, some people like to use that beach as a latrine. I will say, don't go there. However, there are a bunch of really cool uh, karaoke bars, which are really interesting. Um, if you really like country, you should go to a karaoke bar in West Africa because everybody loves to sing old-ass country. It's hilarious. Like, I haven't heard Kenny Rogers uh, being sung by an entire room forever. Uh, because, I mean, I grew up with my dad really loving to sing Kenny Rogers. Um, that's in a totally different story. But to Liberia, I randomly went to a uh, karaoke bar and everybody sang The Gambler. Every damn Liberian in the whole joint. No, that, <laughs> that's the no one to hold, no one to fold them song, that one. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, The Gambler. You got in a hole. Yeah, totally. That song. <laughs> I did not see that coming. And how and how serendipitous that it happens to be a song which you shared with your father, or at least an artist who... Josh, how did this young lady not make it into the pacemakers? This is crazy. Listen, we've got an all-acapella medical school group i guess that what could be more important than this i don't <laughs> yes because because she was busy doing clearly far more important things than how i was spending my time in medical school so well thank you so so much for joining us for telling us all this fascinating stuff that you've been up to and i hope that you know on when you return next time from Liberia, you will consider joining us again just to hang out. Oh, well, I don't know about impressive, but I do think it's pretty cool. So um, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was really fun. And yeah, I'll try to join in some other time. And with that, folks, that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, as well as any resources we used coming up with this week's questions and history. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.